Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPIGIN. I'm Tamara Hadjet, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and Medical Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. And my co-host today is... I'm Peter, Peter Liu. Liu. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Peter. <laughs> hello, hello. How are you? We're good, good. How are you? We're trying this good. new thing where we're kind of trying Indeed. to be a little bit more, less formal, more yeah. relaxed, and just uh, we kind of, <laughs> we it's, did good. We did good, Peter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was good. Yeah, we're, uh, it's it's getting there. It'll sound natural soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, do we have any announcements? I can uh, one thing that we have been thinking about is so we really really appreciate all the reviews you guys give especially on apple podcasts and uh the other podcast websites we do look at them all we read them and uh we're gonna start maybe giving some shout outs to uh five star reviews we get so anyways uh please review our podcast if you like it if you don't don't worry about it and uh, yeah. we're trying to figure out a way where maybe we can send out some Bow Sounds swag to people who review our podcast. Yeah. We made yeah. some stickers that we don't really know what to do with. So maybe we'll start sending some of those out. Anyways, right, they're review. cool stickers. They're cool Bow Sounds stickers. So yeah. we want to know what you want to hear about. So let us know. You can either do the hashtag Ask Bow Sounds, direct message Bow Sounds, whatever you want. We want you to be involved with this. This is for you. This is yeah. for our listeners. So today is an exciting episode. Uh, we will talk to Dr. Sam Kokosius about intestinal rehabilitation in pediatric patients. Dr. Kokosius is a professor of pediatrics and the medical director of the Intestinal Care Center and Small Bowel Transplant Program at Cincinnati Children's in Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, Dr. Kokosius is an avid downhill skier. We'll talk to him today about his uh, skiing. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we talk about his skiing a little bit, and uh, we're very excited for him to join us today. We'll be talking about intestinal rehabilitation. Uh, obviously, it's a huge topic, so we're primarily going to focus on management, maybe some hot topics, including one of the things that he's spent a lot of time working on, to do glute to to duglutide. Yes, yep, yep. I finally said <laughs> it. <sighs> All right, <laughs> on to the show. Right. On to the show. Thank you, Dr. Kokosius, for joining us today. We're uh, very excited to have you uh, and talk to you about intestinal rehabilitation. But before we begin with our topic, um, I wanted to first ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself. How would you describe yourself in one sentence? Well, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's going to be an enjoyable session for me as well. Um, describing myself in one, one sentence, I guess I would say, I am best uh, described as a polymath, someone someone who uh, always loves learning and is a perpetual student, even at my advanced age. And uh, as a corollary, uh, when we learn things, it's extraordinarily important to pass them on to others. So also someone who wishes to pass on my knowledge to others. That's perfect. That's why you are on this episode. Yes. And I know that if anybody 
here has any difficult case, it's always ask Dr. Kokosius. He will know. <laughs> <laughs> or, or attempt to answer. <laughs> <laughs> but we heard that uh, aside from learning and teaching, you are also an avid traveler and maybe a little bit of a foodie as well. We heard that you are an avid skier and you've skied on yeah. every continent aside from Antarctica. How awesome is that? More like, okay, tell us about that. Was that like a goal you set for yourself? And what's like your best and worst experience skiing? Mm -hmm. Yes, Peter, it was indeed a goal that I had set for myself. Awesome. And uh, I skied Africa uh, the, in Morocco in the High oh, Atlas wow. Mountains. I've skied um, Asia. When I skied Asia, I, I elected not to, to ski an island. Uh, I skied the mainland and I skied in Manchuria. Um, wow. So it was, uh, that was very exciting. The best experiences, I've had many very good experiences. I guess uh, one was skiing all over Ajax Mountain in, uh, at Aspen um, and skiing some of the double blacks at Ajax. Uh, another was, um, I think uh, uh, several times people have complimented me on my form. One time I can very vividly recall having skied Big Sky, Montana, and I skied a bump run top to bottom without stopping. And at the uh -huh. bottom, some perfect stranger said, that was a hell of a run. <laughs> so my hat size grew about yeah. two sizes after that. Um, the uh, uh, bad experiences, I think, well, let me put it this way. It was, uh, uh, it was bad, but, but good culturally. Skiing in Manchuria, I recognized that the uh, managers of the ski hill uh, knew nothing about grooming. And I can recall going down a little intermediate hill, and in the middle of the hill, there was glare ice, literally glare ice. It was like a skating rink. Oh, and we managed oh, wow. to pick our way down. We were able to successfully get down there. But um, the, uh, the guide who had brought us there, she was from Harbin, she, she said, um, uh, you know, if you want to leave early, <laughs> here's my phone number. And, and she was prescient. Uh, we, uh, we did indeed uh, want to leave early. We did one day of skiing. It was, uh, it was you know, challenging but fun. And after, a, a, you know, a hard day of skiing and another day of actually hiking around, around Yabali, which is where we skied, we, uh, we went back to Harbin and, um, and went to the shopping mall. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, that's this awesome. is uh, embarrassing, but um, so, so that's this is like northern China. Is that where? yes, okay, yes, okay. It was northern China. Okay, yeah, it was really a, a, <laughs> along the Trans-Siberian Railroad, and oh, um, wow. and so it still had a little bit of Russian influence. Uh -huh. um, most of the young Chinese kids uh, whom we met uh, greeted us in Russian. You're Russian. So it was a, it was an interesting cultural experience. It was a, it was actually a, a great great deal of fun and very educational. Yeah. I was just going to ask a side question. Have you noticed that skiing or uh, traveling helped you with your medical decisions? And that's a very good question. I, I yes, I think it has. First of all, it has made me more culturally aware of different cultures, uh, different types of uh, worldviews. But I think also it's made me recognize that uh, that people all over the world have several basic needs, which is are which are identical. They all love their family. They want the best. 
and um, they want the best care for their family, including medical care. Yeah. Absolutely. Thinking like if you travel, you realize that we're definitely way more alike than we are uh, different. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's true. That's true. Okay. So shifting to our topic today, we're going to talk about managing pediatric patients um, that require intestinal rehabilitation. Before we kind of dive into our topic, can you tell us how you developed your interest in intestinal rehabilitation and small bowel transplant? Mm-hmm. Well, like many physicians, I think that one of the important motivating factors was having good mentorship and having role models. Um, back when I was in training, uh, children with intestinal failure were really managed primarily by surgeons because it was primarily children with uh, surgical short bowel syndrome who were who required parenteral nutrition. I can recall back in my fellowship at Yale, uh, John Seashore did all of the TPN. Uh, he was a wonderful man, spectacular surgeon, and a spectacular human being. And uh, he taught me a great deal about the management of, of TPN. So I found that managing the patients was, uh, was gratifying. Um, so ultimately, when I had my first academic job at the University of Kentucky, I found that the surgeons were managing TPN. And there were patients they were about to give up on whom I knew I could manage. And I very uh, perhaps uh, diplomatically asked whether they would mind if I took these patients on my service. They agreed, and ultimately, I was I was managing all of the the TPN uh, patients uh, at the University of Kentucky on my own on the pediatric service rather than the surgical service, and uh, and found that um, once again it was extremely gratifying. I like to u- utilize the term emancipation. We um, it is our goal to emancipate children from from TPN. Yeah. So, you know, obviously intestinal rehabilitation, intestinal failure is a huge topic. So today we want to talk to you primarily about treating and managing these patients, especially some of the hot topics in the field. Before going into that, just for, especially for our learners who are listening, um, what is intestinal failure and uh, when does that require intestinal rehabilitation? Like, is there a definition? Are there types? How would you go? How would you describe that? Yes, Peter, the P.S. began definition of the first formulated in 1981 by Fleming um, is a very good definition. It's essentially uh, the reduction in intestinal mass below which the uh, organism or the the individual can uh, no longer maintain proper physiologic functioning. Uh, As a corollary um, in children, we need to permit them to function uh, normally and, and but also to grow and develop. So compared to adults, they need more calories per kilo. The inability to assimilate those calories uh, enterally uh, and the necessity for uh, either parenteral or enteral nutrition constitutes intestinal failure. I, I believe that Nightingale first defined intestinal failure as either mild or severe. And mild failure was simply the need for uh, total enteral nutrition, more severe failure was the need for, um, for parenteral nutrition. And I like to use that definition because you can utilize those two subpopulations as comparison groups and patients uh, can function as, uh, as their own controls 
when they're getting enteral nutrition or when they're getting uh, parenteral nutrition. Like Peter said, it's a it's a big topic, but what are the key points to remember as a gastroenterologist when managing a patient with intestinal failure? First of all, it's important that um, that the management be multi-specialty management. I think you need a surgeon. Uh, frequently, you need a nephrologist. Um, you need nursing. You need um, feeding specialists. You need psychologists and social workers. And you need a pharmacist and a dietitian. I think centers who have the best outcomes are those who have multi-specialty programs. I think, uh, once again, the, the most important um, aspect is providing enough nutrition, either parenterally or enterally, or some combination of them, uh, to enable the child to uh, grow and uh, develop at a normal rate. We customarily um, uh, try to wean the child from TPN if uh, the weight gain is more than is customary for a child that age, and uh, we gradually increase uh, enteral feeding, recognizing that uh, while some adaptation begins shortly after, say, a bowel resection, the uh, adaptation process may not be complete for two or three years. Um, years ago, it was thought that if all adaptation ended within 12 months of, uh, of an insult to the bowel, especially surgical short bowel syndrome. We now know that adaptation can continue for several years. When we think about management uh, and how that's changed over time, you know, there's a few kind of hot topics that we wanted to talk about. One is um, something that you've worked on a lot, and that's um, to, glu- to do glute. To do glute. To do is to, to glutatize. It's a tongue twister. <laughs> no, I knew I was gonna. I was like practicing say before this. So, um, so uh, you know, obviously, you've been instrumental in kind of a lot of the research that's been involved in this. Um, so, how do you like? What's the role for that currently in uh, our care for patients requiring intestinal rehabilitation, and uh, how do you use it? Mm-hmm. Well, there were many dogmas in uh, when it came to gut adaptation. One was that you could, um, you could reprogram the gut to hyper-absorb. I think what we've learned with these tetuclotide trials is that it's really uh, difficult, if not impossible, to, uh, to hyper-absorb, to reprogram the gut. But you can improve gut function uh, with this pharmacologic agent. Sadly, um, cessation of therapy oftentimes results in regression. It's a GLP-2 analog. And one of the problems with using naturally occurring GLP-2 is that it has a very short half-life. Now, GLP-2 and its analogs produce uh, a trophic effect on the gut. You have lengthening of villi, deepening of crypts, uh, increased receptors, uh, and improved absorption and improved uh, DNA synthesis in the gut. So by many criteria, the gut uh, uh, does, uh, gut function and structure improve on this GLP-2 analog. Now, tadukletide is valuable because through one, through a single amino acid substitution, um, binding by 
dipeptidylpeptidase, which inactivates GLP-2, is blocked. And so that the half-life goes from, you know, sort of one and a half to three minutes uh, up to about two and a half to three hours. So you can give once daily to duclotide and get intestinotrophic effects. We know that um, if you use a 20% reduction in TPN as, as a critical outcome, um, about 75, 70 to 75% of patients who get to duplatide, one injection subcutaneously daily will show that degree of, of uh, adaptation. Um, many, um, though, do better than that. And oftentimes within 12 to 24 weeks, you'll get complete lack of need or, or cessation of need for, for parenteral nutrition. I would say about 15 to 20% of our patients can come completely off TPN when put on to duplatide. And even those who don't um, and have partial reduction of, of TPN have um, better life um, styles and, and better quality of life. Uh, their parents find that if they can reduce TPN requirements from 12 hours a day down to uh, six or seven or eight hours a day, their, their quality of life is much better. Are there differences in outcome when kids are started on it early compared to later in their course, or do we not? Yeah, we don't know the answer to that. Um, uh, the dogma was, yes, it, there should be. But um, because about 80% of patients fully adapt in that first year of life, uh, the pharmaceutical companies who first developed uh, this agent uh, elected to design their studies such that it was given to children uh, one year of age or older. Now, there's a practical reason because you can't dilute out the, the drug enough to give it to children under about 10 kilos in weight. I see. So once you get the kids to about 10 kilos, their surface area and their weight is, a, is enough to, to permit injection of, of the drug. So for that reason, uh, its use is currently limited to children one year of age or older. A couple of follow-up questions on that. Um, what are the major side effects to watch out for when a patient is on it? And um, my other question is, how long do you use it for? The immediate side effects are generally um, vomiting because it does slow transit, intestinal transit. Um, vomiting tends to be moderate uh, and it tends to dissipate over time. The, um, the vomiting almost always disappears by the second month of therapy. And the vomiting is generally no more than once or twice or three times a day. There have been a few cases in adults of cholecystitis and even one case of gangrenous cholecystitis. Um, pancreatitis has occurred in adults, but it doesn't seem to be a huge problem in children. I would say the other important aspect of therapy is that water and electrolyte absorption become so efficient early on in the course that that you can fluid overload patients. So you have to be very careful and they need to be monitored very carefully. Generally during the first month to six weeks of therapy, they should probably be seen at least weekly and changes in TPN be, uh, be um, implemented uh, each week. Um, as a long-term theoretical side effect, there's always the consideration of neoplasia because it, it increases uh, epithelial proliferation. And anything that increases epithelial proliferation uh, could potentially 
result in neoplasia. But we've not seen it in any, any of the children who've been uh, uh, put on it. There have been some who've been treated for up to five years. Now, what is the duration? Well, generally we try weaning after a child has achieved his or her uh, goal. None of the sort of dozen children whom we've treated uh, successfully and gotten them off uh, parenteral nutrition, none of them have been able to come off without regressing. Sometimes immediately, but oftentimes within uh, three to five weeks. So I'm afraid that, that uh, most of these children who we've successfully weaned TPN are going to be on it at least through their entire childhood. And I guess with that in mind, um, what do you feel like is the ideal patient you would use it for? Like the kid who's just dependent on TPN, can't you know, increase enteral feeding. Um, maybe if they are already, I mean, the next question is kind of about the, the dangers of having a central line in place, but maybe if they're having more bloodstream infections, like how, what do you think would be the ideal patient for the deglutide? Well, you would think that ideally it would be someone who's receiving greater than 50% of um, their, their nutrition enterally okay. um, and uh, less than 50% parenterally, um, uh, whom you would suspect would be able to, to wean completely with just a little improvement in intestinal function. Uh, that would be, and in fact, some of the patients who have tried it and successfully gotten them off TPN are just that sort of patient. Extrapolating from adult data, we see that patients with uh, andiliostomies and lack of colon uh, show pretty dramatic improvement in intestinal function in specifically water and salt absorption. Um, if you look at the percent of improvement in stool output, those with an endiliostomy actually improve by a greater percentage than others. Um, so we have also utilized it in children who say have uh, total colonic uh, and partial small bowel Hirschsprung's disease who are unable to, um, to come off IV fluids, uh, that their, their requirements need not be caloric, but are of fluid and, and electrolytes. So that patient is a, is a very good patient to treat. Uh, again, if, if recognizing the children with ultra short gut syndrome, um, say children with 20 centimeters of gut or less, are not likely to ever come off TPN completely, um, we sometimes use seduclotide to make their TPN treatment more manageable and, uh, and to be able to reduce TPN volume. The majority, if not all patients that require intestinal rehabilitation have at some point a central line. And at some point, uh, the central line gets uh, infected and they develop collapsy. And then some of them run out of veins. Um, a couple of questions on that topic. Are patients that undergo intestinal rehabilitation, are they at higher risk of developing collapsy? And is there a way to prevent that from happening? Tamara, I think that the, that the dogma was that there is indeed an increased risk of collapse in, in intestinal failure patients. And in fact, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, um, uh, bloodstream infection rates were about 12 to 15 per thousand catheter days. Um, and, but, you know, we've been able to, to reduce those quite significantly with a couple of strategies. Um, the dogma in the past, and 
I would say probably uh, currently is that uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth plays a role in increasing risk for, for bloodstream infection. And it may, but I'm not so sure that, it, uh, that the data support um, bacterial overgrowth as a cause. Um, the reason I say that is that um, uh, we've been able to reduce our CLABSI rate in, in intestinal failure patients to that below um, what we see in, uh, in neoplasia patients, in patients who are bone marrow transplant patients. So we've been able to reduce it. So I'm, I'm not so sure that bacterial overgrowth plays a role. The second thing is that strategies to reduce bacterial overgrowth, namely antibiotics, have not really reduced CLABSI rates. Third, what we see is when children are out of diapers, their CLABSI rate declines pretty dramatically. So I, my guess is that the translocation comes from um, the stool, which is in the diaper, to the hands of the caretaker, to the hub of the, uh, the central venous catheter, rather than direct translocation from gut to blood. The factors that have played a big role are, uh, number one, training parents and caregivers in meticulous line care, use of biopatches, and I believe, even more importantly, the use of, of uh, either antibiotic or ethanol locks. The ethanol lock therapy, which was instituted in our institution, was associated with a reduction in CLABSI rate from about eight bloodstream infections per thousand catheter days down to about one and a half. And so in our wow. shortcut population and intestinal failure population, our, um, our risk of CLABSI is now down to about one and a half per thousand catheter days. Yeah, that's impressive. You know, one of the other challenges that comes with uh, caring for children with uh, intestinal failure is intestinal failure associated liver disease. What do you, what are the things that kind of contribute to that? And then how do you view the management of that? Well, I think that corollary to um, reducing bloodstream infections in order to prevent CLABSIs is also to uh, improve liver function. I think there are two primary factors which have emerged uh, as, uh, as factors associated with, um, with cholestatic liver disease, which is the more severe liver disease that we see. Uh, those are recurrent bloodstream infections, and secondly, over dosage of lipids containing phytosterols. Now, even patients on lipid-free parenteral nutrition, namely uh, a series of patients, a cohort of patients in, in Finland um, who received parenteral nutrition from early infancy on, um, were found to have significant hepatic fibrosis by anywhere from five to 10 years after uh, the use of, of um, parenteral nutrition was begun. And, um, the, and interestingly, about half of them were off TPN and they had fibrosis. And in Finland, they use essentially no uh, lipid in their TPN. So even high glucose loads play a big role and energy overload plays a big role. But that produces a fibrotic liver disease, a NAFLD type liver rather than cholestatic disease. Cholestatic disease is brought about by giving too much 
lipid with phytosterol and not controlling bloodstream infection. So I think the combination of factors plays a big role. Yeah, endotoxin seems to um, reduce hepatic function. It downregulates the uh, FX receptor, which is a uh, uh, which regulates bile acid homeostasis and um, lipid phytosterols. Uh, downregulate the FX receptor as well, the nuclear receptor. Now, what can we do about this? I think the first thing we can do is actually reduction of uh, lipid. Uh, if you're going to use a product that contains phytosterols, reduce it to, to, to one gram per kilo or less. Um, and if we find that liver disease seems to be progressive despite that, then we, we move on to using one of the specialized lipids. SMOF lipid is one that's a combination of uh, soy, uh, MCT, olive, and um, fish oil. Um, so the, you have those four lipid types. Um, and that seems to be uh, very effective in reducing cholestasis in somewhere around 50% of patients who, who receive it. However, you can have progressive liver disease despite that. And in that situation, you may want to use something that's pure fish oil, um, such as omega Um, And uh, the likelihood of improving um, cholestasis is extremely high with omega uh, Something of the order of uh, 85 to 90% of patients will have improvement in their cholestasis on omega With the, the SMOF or omega do you also limit the rate to one per kg? And then uh, does... Uh, Teduglutide, uh, has it shown that it improves um, or reduces uh, intestinal failure-associated liver disease? Yeah, very good questions. First of all, it's unwise to limit um, SMOF to one gram per kilo because uh, essential fatty acid deficiency can occur because it, uh, you have much less essential fatty acid in SMOF. So we recommend generally two to two and a half grams per kilo if you're going to be using SMOF. Uh, unfortunately, all of the studies that came from Boston children uh, utilize one gram per kilo of omega men. So no one is, is courageous enough to use more than one gram per kilo. You can maintain, because omega men does have a, some endogenous arachidonic acid, um, you can maintain a re- relatively normal triene to tetraene ratio, which is thought uh, to be uh, a marker of essential fatty acid deficiency. Um, uh, but um, you, we have seen patients on, um, on omega men whose uh, linoleic acid uh, is actually quite significantly uh, depressed. Um, in those patients, we oftentimes will perhaps give uh, alternate omega men with intralipid uh, on a weekly or perhaps uh, every two week basis. Uh, that second uh, part of your question is, is very good. Theoretically, it should help, but um, we've really not utilized it, nor in, were many patients with cholestatic liver disease uh, enrolled in any of the studies of teduclidite. So we don't know the answer for sure. Physiologically, it should help because it upregulates fibroblast growth factor, FGF, which uh, improves hepatic function. So I think that it probably does. We talked a little bit about small intestinal bacteria overgrowth in patients with intestinal failure. And I know it's a 
controversial topic. In these patients, how do you diagnose small bowel bacterial overgrowth and do you tend to treat it? And if you do, what is the primary goal uh, for treating these patients? Uh, you're right. It's a, it's a very controversial uh, topic. And I'm of the opinion that, that um, bacterial overgrowth sh- can, should be treated selectively and it would be ideal to permit bacterial overgrowth, but to encourage the growth of, of uh, salutary bacteria or, or bacteria that, that produce, have salutary effects. Um, that is to say, uh, bacteria, obligate anaerobes that engage in fermentation and produce a lot of butyric acid, which is a, an intestinotrophic um, uh, fatty acid that children with surgical shortcut, and in fact, children with motility disorders who have intestinal failure, um, uh, patients with pseudo-obstruction, virtually all of them have some element of bacterial overgrowth, or at least a very high percentage. Um, You can culture directly, but uh, there are pitfalls in doing direct culture. One is you may aerate the the specimen and, and kill all of the anaerobes. Number two is just in transport, you may kill all of the bacteria. And number three, you um, may contaminate the specimen with uh, oropharyngeal flora. So, it, so direct culture has pitfalls. What we have found in our experience working with Dr. Ken Central is that if you measure serum bile acids by fractionation, if you do fractionated bile acids, and find that a large percentage of the bile acids in serum are free bile acids, you're dealing with um, bacterial overgrowth until proven otherwise. What we found was that, uh, that children without bacterial overgrowth uh, basically possess about 20% of their bile acids as free bile acids, whereas children with bacterial overgrowth um, have um, about 80 percent of their bile acids in the serum as free bile acids. So we, we like that, that method of, of proving it. So when we've proven bacterial overgrowth, if we've had an adverse effect from it, that is to say um, uh, D-lactic acidosis, then we do try to get rid of the anaerobes by antibacterial agents. And the antibacterial agents we use have a relatively limited spectrum. We use uh, metronidazole, metazoxidide, both of which have um, a spectrum that only covers obligate anaerobes. Uh, and we try to limit um, the use of, of simple carbohydrates that are easily fermentable as prebiotics. Now, if children don't have that entity and are making enteral progress, we actually do encourage bacterial overgrowth, and we do it by giving prebiotics such as soluble fiber, pectin, guar gum, those sorts of uh, uh, soluble fibers. And we do encourage uh, bacterial overgrowth, hoping that you're going to establish a flora that um, that uh, has salutary effects. Now, when it comes to enteral physiology and, and nutrient assimilation, if you have bacterial overgrowth, fat absorption might decline. The reason being that many of the anaerobes that are present in the gut 
have bile acid hydrolases, so you can't form micelles very well, and you can't uh, uh, absorb fats very well. So your fat absorption may be harmed by encouraging bacterial overgrowth. On the other hand, you can compensate for that by uh, inducing fermentation of starches and soluble fibers. If you have a lot of fermentation going on, you're going to produce a lot of butyrate, which works to um, enhance colonic function. It uh, upregulates the sodium hydrogen transporter. They're the exchanger. Uh, and you um, also improve uh, both small intestinal and large intestinal function. So one of the downsides in young children uh, is that they don't control their bowel movements. And by being unable to control their bowel movements, the uh, osmotic effects of the prebiotics that we give may exceed the positive effects. Uh, in adults who can control their bowel movements, a lot of fermentation goes on. So it may be that fermentation is incomplete in toddlers. They ferment less and you have less of an effect uh, in salvaging calories through that method. It's, it's a very interesting concept. I think that the uh, important thing is to recognize that if that patients who are not thriving, not doing well, might occasionally be ben benefited by uh, eliminating um, the um, obligate anaerobes or reducing the obligate anaerobes. And it sometimes is worth a trial of metronidazole or nitazoxanide. But I think if a child has not made any progress over the course of two to three weeks of therapy, it, that therapy should be abandoned. One of the reasons being that, um, that when you keep a child on an anaerobe-specific antibiotic, you alter flora to some extent. And there is currently a body of literature emerging that actually bloodstream infections are increased in those patients who are, who are given uh, metronidazole or, or nitazoxanide. Um, the stool then may have uh, larger quantities of, uh, of coliforms, uh, which then can, can easily translocate again through the caregiver's hands um, to, the, to the blood. So yeah, so it's like bacterial growth on its own is not necessarily bad. It's really more when it becomes the type that's harming the patient that we can judiciously use antibiotic courses to treat. Correct. Um, so, you know, the, one of your big passions is also uh, small bowel and so intestinal transplant. You know, that's, that could be an entire episode on its own, but just, just kind of a little bit of a, a preview, I guess. Um, so what is the, what are the current indications? Like when do you start to think about intestinal transplant in your care of a child with intestinal failure? And um, how did that begin and how has that evolved over time? The history of intestinal transplant is very interesting. Uh, actually, there was a handful of transplants performed in the 1960s before immunosuppression was very sophisticated. And unfortunately, uh, every patient died within a matter of a few days or weeks. The concept of intestinal transplant basically resurrected uh, by Dr. Tom Starzl at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, where he uh, had done some dog experiments and, and saw that dogs 
uh, could survive for quite some time after a transplant. Uh, and if you could control rejection, you could you could get the, the transplanted gut to function very well. So then early surgeries were done in the late 80s, utilizing cyclosporin as the primary immunosuppressant agent. And of course, those also failed. Uh, cyclosporin was simply not strong enough. Then in the early 90s, um, when tacrolimus came into being, um, the uh, procedure was once again resurrected with much better success. Throughout the decade of the 90s, uh, one-year survival was something like 50%. But over the last five to 10 years, one-year survival has improved to really close to 90%. Now, the five-year provisional survival is still not up. And five-year provisional survival refers to survival of patients who were alive one year after their transplant. So if a patient was alive one year after transplant, you determine whether the patient is still alive five years after transplant. And that survival remains around 75 to 80%. So that means that we lose about 20 to 25% of patients between year one and five. There is a myriad of reasons for that, which are yet to be fully determined. I think uh, one of the possibilities is that, that we don't fully control uh, antibody-mediated rejection. Another is that, uh, that patients uh, may develop lymphoproliferative disease. A third is that if they're undertreated, they may develop chronic rejection. So we need to work on improving that provisional five-year survival. The indications are pretty straightforward. If a, if a patient has what we deem to be uh, irreversible liver disease and very little hope for gut adaptation, then we'll list that patient for transplant. And included in those cohorts who need to be transplanted are patients with, uh, with congenital disorders, such as microbilis inclusion disease, tufting enteropathy, and the like. Um, as well as uh, motility disorders, especially those patients with myopathic pseudo-obstruction, um, primarily from mutations in, in any of the smooth muscle proteins, such as the uh, ACTG2 gene. Uh, those patients have a very poor prognosis and tend not to get better over time. And if we see no improvement in, in any of those patients, then we, we will list that patient for combined liver bowel transplant if, they, um, if their uh, liver is beginning to fail. If the liver is not failing, then we have the luxury of waiting until we see a reduction in, in uh, central venous access. And generally, good rule of thumb is if you've lost half of your upper extremity vessels, you should be thinking about transplanting that patient. Dr. Kokosh, it was great having you today. What has been the best advice that somebody's given you? And what advice do you have for uh, the new trainees and junior faculty like us and the listeners? Well, I think um, one of the uh, best quotes uh, comes from Descartes, um, who said that um, every time I was able to solve a problem, many new problems uh, emerged that I didn't know about. So I think 
it really is important for trainees and junior faculty to number one, to uh, find mentors. And um, uh, we all need mentors. So it really is, I think, wise. Uh, I don't think you'll have Descartes as a member, as a mentor, but uh, I think it's wise to have a mentor. To be focused and to, to find a field that you really love and have a passion for in GI or any, any field. If you love eosinophilic bowel disease, that's wonderful. If you love functional abdominal pain, that's wonderful. But, um, but have a focus, ask yourself questions about it, and try to solve problems, but recognize that with every problem you solve, there will be more problems that emerge that you can further explore. So I think, um, again, be focused, take up a field that you uh, have a passion for and, and pursue it throughout your career. Right. That's how research ideas come up, right? Thinking about a problem and how to solve it. And then Mm -hmm. you solve it, but something else comes up and another research idea comes up. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So that's, that's great. It's kind of like your one, your sentence description, you know, like being a lifelong learner. I think if you're going to be successful, to be committed to continuing to keep on learning and asking questions. So once again, you know, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. Um, before we end, any final words for the listeners? Well, I would say, number one, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure and, having uh, you. The, um, I think that uh, my final um, bit of advice is to, you know, to apply the, the principles that I have outlined. I would encourage you to um, have an interest in intestinal failure and uh, because it, uh, the the um, successful emancipation of a child from TPN is, is extremely gratifying. And um, I think that we need to remember what Osler said, you know, about, uh, I think he said it about, uh, about STDs, uh, syphilis in particular, no syphilis in, you know, medicine. Well, now I think if you know, if you know intestinal failure, you really know a lot about medicine. So, um, yeah. so I would encourage, uh, trainees to um, have an interest in intestinal rehabilitation rather than therapeutic endoscopy. (laughs) 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 Yeah. No, we need both. We need both uh, types of people. So um, we need our therapeutic endoscopists, but we also uh, need a lot of good people uh, working on intestinal rehabilitation. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Thanks again. And uh, we'll see you. Maybe we'll see you at NASP again. I hope so. Yeah. In person, maybe. (laughs) If not, virtually. (laughs) We had an awesome time talking to to Dr. Kokosius. I want to thank him again for taking the time to sit down with us to talk about this huge topic that hopefully I'm sure we'll have many more episodes on in the future. Um, To me, I think the biggest take home was really, I I think it was just uh, impressive for me to hear about all the advances that have been made Um, over time in the care for these very complicated children. You know, even though their care is complex, there's like a lot of new things coming down the pipeline and including like medications like what we talked about. So um, it seems like an exciting time in the field. Um, So if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Bowel Sounds and on Facebook 
at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspgha.org. So the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Bye.